Welcome to another edition of the Artifactual Journey. I'm your host, Philip J. Merrill, and today, as usual, I'm always excited, but I'm really excited when I get to talk to someone that I would like to put into my friend category, but at the moment she can be a colleague, and that down the road, hopefully she'll be a friend. And we're talking about California. Yes, California. Blacks in the Gold Rush, California. And the artifact that leads us to this project is none other than a 1977 first edition book with dust jacket by Rudolph M. Lapp entitled Blacks in Gold Rush, California. And could you identify your name and title and, and who you are, please? Uh, well, thanks so much, Philip. This is wonderful. I love what you do, and I'm pleased to be talking with you. Thank you. Um, my, and my name's Susan Anderson, and um, I'm the uh, director of programs at the California Historical Society. How long have you been with the California Historical Society? I've been with the Historical Society for... A, almost exactly one year now. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> Did I see that your title changed at some point recently? That's true. Um, my focus, uh, I was the director of just about everything here for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Collections and exhibitions and programs and the library. And now I'm very happy to be focused on, on public programs. Okay, so how did we meet? <laughs> Didn't we meet on social media and didn't we meet on Facebook? Indeed, indeed. And I, I, want, I wanted you to say that because all across the country, people are struggling with various issues with Facebook. But I'm here to say that there's still some good components of that platform. And I would not have been able to meet you if it wasn't for that platform. Oh, I agree with you. I've gotten collections in my past, you know, positions. I've had different positions as, as a curator in different institutions. And, you know, worked in this field for a while. I've gotten collections out because of Facebook contacts. Well, and you know I have too, right? We, we, we've gotten some great donations recently, and it's largely through Facebook. So I was tickled when you clicked on something, and then I said, oh my gosh, this lady sounds interesting. Let's reach out to this lady. So for all the people that want to hate on Facebook, there's still some positivity that can come from it. You just need to be selective and not get caught up in the algorithms. <laughs> exactly. It's like, I think of it like money. It's how you use it. I, I agree. I, I like that. I'm going to remember <laughs> that. So let's talk about me acquiring this book. I just have to tell you that the original book cost $15 in 1977, published by Yale University Press. Yeah. I, at this time in my career, in the late 80s, I was working for a nonprofit that we owned we were doing welfare to work and job training for legal refugees and troubled youth. I would leave the office and sneak out of the office at different times and go to the used and rare bookstores. <laughs> it was like a cathartic kind of experience for me. And I picked up this book for $7. Mm. And at the time, I had no idea who Rudolph Lapp was, or I knew nothing about the Blacks in the Gold Rush. I just looked at the cover Loved the image and perused it quickly to say it's shock filled with too much information for me to consume. So I purchased it and put it away for almost a quarter of a century. Mm -hmm. 2014 or so, we acquire a cadre of carte visite images and one happens to be from a San Francisco minister. Mm -hmm. 
And that minister church is documented in Lapp's book. And I got excited and I said, okay, so let me go back to the book. So I start learning about the gold rush a little bit. And I then dig into our archives and pull out a signed edition of Shadow and Light by Mifflin Wistar Gibbs. Right. Which, but I didn't realize that he migrated to California in the early 1850s. I get excited. So I'm just delighted that you are going to take the work from that book and move it to another level with what you're doing. And the title of your effort is? The book that I'm writing for Heyday Books is African Americans and the California Dream. And it, this is a civic history. It's really the premise of the book is that if we look at California as a place that has, for generations, had a kind of reputation as a liberal place, as an open society, then the only way to understand that is to know about the, the uh, civic impact that African Americans have had on the state since its inception. And what led you to want to create a new body of work with that theme? Because your geographical location is wide open with so many desirable themes. What caused you to focus on this particular one? Well, I mean, I've been doing this for quite a while. I've been writing and publishing about the California's African-American past for several decades now. And I think that part of my interest is because my mother's side of my family, both of my Maternal grandparents were born in California 106 years ago, mm. and uh, and their parents, my grandparents' parents and families, came as young people to the state at the end of the 19th century in the 1890s. Mm. So, mm. you know, one set of great-grandparents and their family came to California in the 1890s from Louisville, Kentucky. My grandmothers, the other set of great-grandparents and their brothers and sisters came to California from New Orleans in the 1890s. That's just too exciting. I mean, look at the journey for them to get there. Right. And, you know, growing up, I was always hearing from people that black people came to California during World War II to work in the defense industry. And I knew that black people <laughs> came to California during World War II. Right, Everybody right. came to California during World War II. It wasn't just black people. The migration right. was huge. Yes. But I also knew that, you know, even as a child, that used to strike me strangely because I was aware in a very kind of dim way that my family had been around for a while. Actually, both sides of my family, because my dad came as a teenager in 1946 from Tuskegee to live with his aunt and her, her husband, who was also a California native. Mm. But both sides of my family founded churches. My, my mother's family founded Bethlehem Lutheran Church in West Oakland in 1920, and it's still here. Oh, my goodness, so, my goodness. Even as a kid growing up, I knew there's more to this story. That's right, that's right. Than most people are aware of. And I, so I think that deep down that was had to be some of what got me interested. And, and as an adult, 
I just started looking into things. I was, you know, I've been a writer my whole life. I got to contribute to a lot of different publications and periodicals, and this was what I focused on. Well, I think the ancestors have helped to guide you and your family as well, and they've done a great job because you are a living witness. I mean, so often we interact with the public when we give lectures and do other public engagement activities where the people are talking about the same topics over and over again. And I'm always trying to get people to learn to dig deeper or go down paths that have not been traveled before. Mm-hmm. And Well, but I think that in, in our people's history, that's where the opportunities are because the exactly. story hasn't half been told. A- exactly. And so that's really how we create an artifactual journey because you're on a journey. Okay, we're on a journey that starts with an artifact, but it's really connecting people to a place, to a community, or to some type of organization. And often, it's very difficult to track down a descendant. Right. Not only a well, dis- you know, in your case, you 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 have the DNA all up in you, right? <laughs> well, it's funny, and this is can help people get perspective. I think because of my research, but also because. You know, I've just been around for a long time and looking into things and meeting people and interviewing people and getting to know people. I know now quite a few people who are descendants of people who did come to California during the gold rush. Oh, that's exciting and important. And, you know, (laughs) some of them came as free people. Right. And there are some descendants of people who were brought here in an enslaved condition. Yes. And I got to know these people. I was writing about their ancestors in my early chapters here. And from our perspective and my perspective, I'm a latecomer. My family is a latecomer compared to people who came here in 1849. They are, but but nonetheless, you still have (laughs) some form of ownership. And in, in preparing for you, I was intrigued by learning about Delilah Beasley's Negro Trailblazers of California. Absolutely. And the role of oral history. See, some scholars like to frown upon oral history, but I think there's always some kernel of truth in oral history. Yeah, and, and I think. You have, to have both things. Right. And, and Delilah Beasley is the, still the most important historian of black people in California. Okay, but see, and most of us don't even know her name. If, if So work with me for a minute. If you don't know Rudolph Lapp's name, you're definitely not going to know Delilah Beasley's name. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and see, so well, when you think of anything pre-Civil War, you know, this whole story is, uh, is still, as far as I'm concerned, and I, I like to think I get around, it, it's still under a rock somewhere. Yeah, and you know, we... Uh, I'm always working with people and trying to help reshape the discussion because people like to use phrases and you know we have that beautiful book by Isabel Wilkerson yes yes people love to use phrases like the great migration right right (laughs) multiple migrations thank you say say, say that for me again please I get excited say that that phrase thank you migrations there wasn't just one that started in world war one and lasted until 1970 thank you you know there were multiple migrations and one important one were the people that came to california 
during the gold rush. The, the gold rush was the, a massive migration, one of the largest migrations in human history. Within a year, California went from being a, a Mexican territory owned by the country of Mexico that had indigenous people and some very kind of disinterested Spanish and Mexican residents to almost half a million people showing up here in California to get rich and to have a better life. And African Americans were part of that migration and it was remarked upon in the in the black newspapers of the times the uh, abolitionist papers debated about whether black people should be going to california what were the costs of doing that and eventually as a matter of fact frederick Douglass and martin delaney who published frederick Douglass's newspaper yes especially after 1850 and the passage of the fugitive slave Slave act yep yep absolutely go to California. And see, right right there, that is fabulous because people aren't really aware of the impact of Douglas's newspaper. Mm -hmm. And and they're not really aware of the impact of that New Bedford community. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of love for Douglas out here, but it, it hasn't been tied into how they're advertising in this paper about activities in California. Well, they published, you know, there were quite a few uh, Reverend Jeremiah Sanderson yes. was an example who was an AME minister, very learned man, who was a friend of Frederick Douglass's, had been very active and well-known in the anti-slavery movement in New Bedford, Massachusetts. People, we talked about Mifflin Gibbs and other people who came from Philadelphia, right. who, which was also a center it sure was. Yes. Activity. Most of the African Americans who came to California during the gold rush were educated people. They were sophisticated. They were experienced as anti-slavery leaders and campaigners. Most of them were connected to Douglas and his paper or William Lloyd Garrison and his paper. paper yes. Had wide reputations already and they were among those people that caught gold fever and decided to move themselves across the country but when they got here i have a wonderful letter from peter lester who was a shoemaker and a leader of the anti-slavery society in philadelphia Mm -hmm. a letter he wrote in 1850 that was published in the pennsylvania freeman when he arrived in San Francisco, he said to his compatriots, said, you know, I wish I was there with you, but I, uh, when I arrived here in California, I thought I would have no anti-slavery work to do, but I find I have as much work to do here as I did with you. That's a powerful but statement, it, isn't it? That's powerful. His, so these were eyewitnesses. Yes, yes. You know, to what was going on in California, but they were... More than that, because they contributed to the development of the state, and importantly, they helped transform the civic culture here, because California was a, even though it came in 
to the United States in 1850 as a free state as part part of the Compromise of 1850, California, the courts and the government, the state legislature, they allowed slave owners to bring enslaved people into the state. The legislature was dominated by pro-slavery Democrats, and they passed all kinds of legislation that was very discouraging to the people that came out here, and they, of course, promptly began organizing against all that kind of thing. And I'm talking about in the 1850s. Right, which is really, really early. And see, as an East Coast person, an Easterner, we think of the Fugitive Slave Act, and we also think of something in Pennsylvania called the Christiana Resistance of 1851, which is like a precursor to the Civil War. And there are a couple other legal battles that are regional that have a a tremendous multi-state impact. We're always interested in learning about how any legislature any type of newspapers, any type of organizations have a multi-state reach. And so a lot of what you're talking about is rooted in New York, Philadelphia, and other state in Massachusetts. So it's really exciting to us on the East Coast. And the connections were there. Most of the African-Americans who migrate to California during this huge migration, this huge migration of the gold rush, most of them were from the Atlantic coast. They yeah. were not fewer, there were fewer people from the South, and of course, it's almost to be assumed that most of the people that came South uh, came in, in the condition of enslavement. They were brought to California, but one of the interesting things about the enslaved people who were brought, many made bargains, and there's a lot of evidence of this too, there were bargains made with the people who claimed to own them, if they, you know, if they were put to work in the mines or in other occupations, they could bargain to buy themselves and their families out of enslavement. That was a almost common practice because mm. California was the wilds, and you could get into gold country and run away, which people did. Sure, sure. I I, I got to just jump in to ask you this. What about Negro Hill as one of the communities? I'm fascinated by that, according to what I've been reading from LAP. Uh-huh. Well, you know, the fact is that there were dozens and dozens right, of right. communities yeah. like that. The Mother Lode territory mm-hmm. is hundreds of miles. Sometimes people don't realize how big California is. And I did finish my chapter on the gold rush with all, you know, inspired by the research that Rudolph Lapp did in his book, but also with the ambition to build on it. Sure, and I sure. traveled around the mother load to look at communities where African Americans were had a prominent role, all the way from the far north, what we call the far north, down to the southern part of the mother load. There's two things I want to say. There were hundreds of communities like that, but uh, frankly, black uh, people didn't name those communities. Those were usually named by white <laughs> right, people. Right, right, yes, yes. And they did not call it Negro Hill, okay? Right, 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 right. So that's number one. But the second thing is that's really much more true about these early communities is that there was actually very little racial segregation physically. Black people lived in these communities. They homesteaded. 
even though in California there was a law discriminating against black ownership of land and because of the court testimony laws, if somebody stole your land, you couldn't take them to court and speak for yourself. You could certainly get a lawyer. Mm -hmm. But people lived very much woven into these early communities. And I don't think many people know that. that. That's good information that you're sharing about the interwovenness of the community. That's a factor and a characteristic of the West generally. Okay. The, the number of black people was small compared to other groups. So what I mean is not the number was small because California has a huge population, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of black people here, but proportionately as part of the population, there's always been a small proportion of the population. That was true from the beginning, and it's true now, which makes the impact that they've had on the civic life of the state even greater because it was a proportionately small Smaller. Yes, that yes. had more of an impact probably than any any other group but in the west in california you had to be part of the community because you know there almost really weren't enough people during this early period to even set up something separate and that wasn't necessarily the interest of the people they wanted the same thing everybody else that's right they wanted their land they wanted to homestead they wanted to raise turkeys or or ladies hay or whatever they were doing on their on their farms and on their ranches yes yes and you know i start off talking about how complex all of this is and how you could go down a rabbit hole so to speak but i I just want to read you something that caught my eye in lap's book on page 61 i'm a native of baltimore uh, maryland and it says the Englishman Joseph Batty, while prospecting along Feather River, met a Negro miner from Baltimore who invited him to his mountain cabin. Batty was at first apprehensive of the novel experience of sleeping under the same blankets with a black American. But after three days, he reported that he was quite comfortable and enjoying his host's cooking. The black was a freeman who had been a clerk for a Baltimore merchant. And he goes on and on where he's marveling at the literacy and knowledge of scriptures that this man had. That alone was intriguing to me because it's unfortunate that often white folks don't understand that some of us were free. Some of us had our own libraries, read newspapers, and obviously could quote the scripture and sing and and be a part of a church. So this man is just totally enamored with this black little pocket that he's in and that the people wanted to do business with him mm-hmm. and they offered him partnerships so that is showing you that they wanted to be a part and parcel of the larger community and much to support what you're saying it wasn't uh, anything that was separate right and you know most most people who came out during the gold rush weren't minors something you may have started out in the in the gold fields yeah most people were doing things to support the miners, right. whether it was growing food or cooking food or cutting hair or... Or, or operating know, the shoe shop. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Or pastoring a church. So working at the California Historical Society, how are you able to get minorities to 
improve their visitorship and membership at your organization in this time period, right now in, in yeah. 2019, 2020? I feel that it's part of my role, but I felt that everywhere I've been, you know. So, for instance, for a long time, I was a curator at UCLA Library Special Collections. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When I came back home to the Bay Area, I ran the African American Museum and Library in Oakland, which is kind of the West Coast Schoenberg Center. Okay. And here, my understanding is, uh, as a historian of California, I understand that California, we have to tell the full story. Right. And... We do several things. We have probably the most first programming offerings that we've had in a long time. That's one thing. Okay. And we have been bringing new audiences in through the door because of the way we've widened our programming reach. And the other thing I'd like to mention is that some of the work that I've done with the collection since I've been here, I give a regular talk working with archivists and the reference librarian here, we have been able to pull out and identify, and we're working on a study guide of materials in the collections related to 19th century California African American history. Oh, wonderful, our, wonderful. Our collections here at the California Historical Society are the strongest when it comes to the 19th century and previous centuries under, you know, we've got Spanish records, all kinds of things. Our collections are less strong on modern collections. But so, for instance, my next talk will be on these materials, and I'll do it in February. And it brings a large numbers of people who are interested. We have, for instance, court documents from the N1863 court case Charlotte Brown brought, and she comes from a famous civil rights family against a streetcar company because they discriminated against her. Mm. And Charlotte Brown and Mary Ellen Pleasant are two names from 19th century San Francisco that, you know, 90 years before Rosa Parks. That's right, that's right, sued, yes. Sued the streetcar companies and got their policies. Yes. Change. Who's not in love with Pleasant, right? Mm-hmm, exactly. Uh, so I mean... Have, you know, photographs, tintypes. Yes. Publications. We have a speech by a well-known poet, James Madison Bell, who was nationally known, lived in San Francisco for a long time. He wrote a poem a year after Harper's Ferry, so that's 1850, you know, commemorating the raid and... Um, it, it, it was given in public in San Francisco. So we have that original oh, that's outstanding. Um, pamphlet and you know, a range of really extraordinary documents. So that all kinds of people of all races come in to hear this talk because it's still, it's news. <laughs> you know, it's history, but it's it's exciting because, again, it goes back to that you're uncovering material that needs to surface that's not the standard, uh, I call them the, the usual suspects that get trotted out every Black History Month. Exactly. And, and, and that's the key to us moving forward and learning. We, we got to tell these wider stories 
And I think that what you're doing is outstanding. We need to learn more about this. So when can we expect that your book to be published and on the market and for sale? Well, my manuscript is due December 1st, 2020, so wish me luck. I, I will be wishing you luck. <laughs> and I might hint that maybe if you stay off social media, you might be able to uh, get more of it done. <laughs> yeah, so I know. Tell me about it. <laughs> because, because here at Nanny Jack and Company, we kept saying now, Lord, help us. If she's supposed to be at this writing retreat, uh, she's constantly posting on social media. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so your work is outstanding, is much needed, is helping to fill a void in the historical narrative. And I'm just very excited and honored to call you a colleague. And in my next journey to the West Coast, I'm going to try to stop by to see you. Well, we'll see some interesting things. We look forward to having you here. Okay. Well, I'd like to thank you very much for participating in an artifactual journey. And it was a pure delight to talk with Susan Anderson of the California Historical Society. Thank you.